0: But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetics series, posted November 12th, 2019, titled, A Historian Explains the Evidence for the
1: Resurrection of Jesus. Dr. Gary Habermas responds. Only about 10% of the material is repeat of anything I've done before. So it's mostly new material.
0: Because if there's one thing the case for the resurrection of Jesus could use, it's new material. Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel, why not take a second to tap on the subscribe button, so that you can be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. If you're familiar with my channel, you've probably heard me invoke the name Dr. Gary Habermas, a man who has devoted much of his scholarly career to the defense of the resurrection of Jesus. But since video is not Gary's primary medium, there hasn't been much chance for me to do a response directly. Fortunately, he recently appeared in a beautifully shot interview with Capturing Christianity.
2: Yeah, I'm doing this interview with, with Dr. Gary Habermas, and he's writing a book that's about to be 5,000 pages long. And, that's about right. and people thought that was a typo.
0: As long as I've been seriously studying the Jesus resurrection claims, the promise of Gary Habermas's long-awaited magnum opus has been hanging out there like a vaccine that will finally cure the world of doubt. And while Gary does interview after interview and lecture after lecture, where the promise of this book comes up, it seems we are no closer to reading it than we are the final book of Game of Thrones. I've long dubbed Habermas the George R. R. Martin of apologists. And while I don't begrudge the man taking his time, what I'm exhausted from are he and other Christians arguing from what they imagine might be in this hypothetical work, as if it's a source we can evaluate
1: in the present. It's not. Publish the book, and then we'll talk. I spent 150 pages...
2: 150?
1: ...on 19th century German liberalism. 150 pages? I'll give you 150. That's a lot of pages. 150 pages on David Hume and the argument against miracles. 150 more. 150? Take that, David Hume. Uh, 80 pages of defense. What, you like, 80? You
2: cannot be 80.
1: Defense of the crucifixion alone. How do we know Jesus died? 80 pages on the mundane claim that a man died. Boom.
0: These are some solid arguments from future page counts. Are there any other numbers you can give us? Eight evidences
1: for the empty tomb. Eight. Eight.
2: Eight. All eight. Mark at eight,
1: dude. Ready? Ready. Eight. eight. Or another one gives about ten. Ten
0: points for Gryffindor! Tens are good. Tens are
1: good. I've got twenty-two evidences for the empty tomb. Twenty-two!
2: Twenty-two.
0: 22. 22. I counted 22. 22. 22 makes it a gas chamber
1: bounce. 22! And I'm almost never asked, how do you know these facts are true? A lot of us have been asking that,
0: constantly. Perhaps you should do an interview with a non-believer sometime. I'd love to chat with you, Gary. But please, enough of the numbers. How do you
1: know these facts are true? So I put a list together, and if you count all the individual pieces of data that accredit these six, it's over 100. Over 100.
0: I mean, 100 is the perfect percent score for a test, so the facts are true. So those are some of the surprises in the book and some of the things I'm looking forward to. Obviously, I'm not expecting Gary to bring the nuance of 5,300 pages of detail to every random YouTube appearance he makes, but at this point... I think it's entirely fair for me to point out that Gary is using the non-availability of his work as a shield bunker from which he can lob academic assertions that he knows he will not have to back up.
2: She lives in Canada. Made her at Niagara Falls. You wouldn't know her.
0: I genuinely cannot wait for this book to come out. But with way over 5,000 pages, I'm a little worried that I won't be able to financially afford the price of the book. And I'm not getting any younger, so I hope I live long enough to read all of it. Gary, I beg you. Start putting up chapters now on some paywall website or something. I'll subscribe, I promise. I think it's fair for me to be frustrated to see Gary in appearance after appearance appeal to numbers that he alone has access to, as if he's proven some kind of point with them. And even worse, I'm frustrated at hearing other Christians naively fall for the idea that Gary throwing out numbers of things they don't have access to is some kind of evidence for a good reason to believe something. It's just not. Until we can see what he's talking about. This is a man shouting random numbers. He might as well be calling out a bingo game. Hope everybody remember to take their vitamin B6. (laughs) Bingo!
1: I start with what I call a minimal facts argument. And I've used anywhere from three to seven over the years. Lately I've been doing six. And I would say, Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus lived, then Jesus died. Easy to grant. His disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus.
0: Not that the disciples had experiences, just that they believed they had experiences. A carefully worded low bar. Even so, who does Gary mean by the disciples? The Twelve? The evidence that any of the original Twelve did anything at all is shockingly sparse. Not a single one of them ever puts their name to paper and tells us they saw a risen Jesus. Even if you grant that Peter wrote the Peter letters... James wrote the James letter, and John wrote the John letters. None attest to this personally. Zero. It's a fact that people believed that the disciples believed
1: that they saw a risen Jesus. That's all you have, really. Because of their belief that he was raised, it is the event that has turned the world upside down religiously. What turned the world upside
0: down was when Rome made Christianity the empire's first official religion. But by that point, the veracity of the claims of the resurrected man were all but irrelevant. Emperor Constantine had his own visions and dreams that he attributed to Christ, and which drove his passion, not the handed-down disciple beliefs from centuries prior. Gary is making a strange argument from popularity here. Surely a religion doesn't have to be grounded in historical fact in order to become popular. Otherwise, Gary would have to think that the evidence for
1: Scientology, Mormonism, Islam, and others would have to be considered true as well. It was the resurrection that powered the religion, uh, rep- powered the teachings, even to the point of being willing to die. Uh, and we do have first century sources for the, the arguably the three largest names.
0: Apologists who know what they're doing use this careful phrase, willing to die, rather than claiming that said disciples actually did die for their faith, because the evidence doesn't back up that latter claim. When Gary points to sources for the three largest names, he's tacitly admitting that there simply aren't reliable sources for any of the rest of them. By those three, I'm going to assume Gary means Peter, Paul, and James, only one of whom was actually a member of the Twelve.
1: Four, very important, it was proclaimed very early. And today, critics, the, the consensus position is that you can track the resurrection preaching back to immediately after the cross. Um... By what definition of immediately? When Paul said yes to Jesus on the way to Damascus, there was already a body of data called the early creeds that are later written in the New Testament.
0: Paul wrote his letters about 20 years after the death of Jesus. So what we know for sure is that the resurrection preaching was established in the first 20 years. Gary and others like to speculate, and possibly reasonably so, that Paul heard this teaching when he went to Jerusalem and met with the church elders. An event estimated roughly five years after Jesus' death. Is three to five years so early that it resists being a legend? And so what if this preaching began even the very week Jesus died? That's about the timing of Elvis sightings after his
1: death. And then the last two would be individuals, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, both of whom become Christians because they believed they had experiences.
0: Well, I think most will accept that Paul became a Christian because he believed he had an experience. In the seven books that can be confidently attributed to Paul, he lays out what he believes and why. In fact, he's the only gospel for which this is true. Again, that clever wording of believing he had an experience, not actually having an experience. As for James, well, we don't actually have any idea what he believed and why. As I mentioned, even if I conceded that James wrote James, that letter is silent on resurrected Jesus. We're no closer to finding out whether James claimed any such experience for himself.
1: Those are the six I would use. All right,
0: let's review. Jesus died. Okay. Disciples thought they saw risen Jesus. If I'm unjustifiably charitable and grant Gary that he has good evidence for Peter, Paul, and James, he's given those last two individuals their own separate points. So the best we can give this point is that Peter thought he had an experience. Though more realistic to say that people thought that Peter thought that he saw a risen Jesus. If we change this to Christianity became popular, then check. Early? Well, what's early? Within 20 years is what the hard facts tell us. Is that early? Maybe a check. Even if I grant just a few years, this doesn't seem particularly relevant. James thought he had an experience. That I don't see. That James was an early church leader? Sure. That people believed that James believed he had an experience? Okay. Paul thought he had an experience. Check. We started and ended on good ones. What can we conclude here? Shortly after a man died, people came to believe that other people believed that they saw him alive. After a few hundred years of this story passing around, it became very popular. Assume with me for just a minute that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. What here would need some kind of explanation? He died. Shortly after, some people believe stories that other men thought they saw him alive. After a few hundred years, this tradition became popular. It seems pretty straightforward, with no actual resurrection involved.
2: And the, the one thing that they say that I see a lot is any naturalistic explanation you can think of right. is going to be more probable.
1: That's I mean, that's a lot of guys. Is that is your response? You no, know, that is that is this objection because what they're saying is disciple stole the body is a lousy objection. But it's better than yours because stolen bodies happen in this world, resurrections don't.
0: It's not that resurrections don't or can't. It's that we have massively convincing evidence for countless stolen bodies, and we entirely lack convincing evidence of any resurrections. Sheer probability is on the side of the mundane claim. Improbable things do happen all the time, but by
1: definition, the probable is more probable. What he's saying is... There's no another world. There's not another world from which Jesus was a strange visitor to this planet. Or he's
0: saying there's insufficient evidence to establish such a place. While in the meantime, the world we
1: exist in is well evidenced. They're not saying what a lot of Christians think they are. They're not saying all of my theories have better evidence than yours. They're not. They're saying you got some data there, but you asked me to believe in a crazy place and people can rise from the dead and we don't have any other examples. So chances are you're wrong. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. Chances are, you're wrong. And I'd say, alright, 30 million people claim to have NDEs. NDE means near-death experience. Correct. Alright, right. I'm going to admit up front that
0: NDEs aren't an area where I've dug deep. Even when I was a die-hard Christian, I found them to be pretty underwhelming. Beyond the, shall we say, non-rigorous documentation or corroboration, it just didn't seem to be special that a dying, oxygen-deprived brain would come up with some unusual thoughts and sensations. Certainly not anything that warranted demand for supernatural explanation. But I'll allow this side rabbit trail for now. Give Gary a chance to turn me around on this. Or at least spark my intellectual curiosity.
1: A fellow just retired from University of Virginia Medical School. He's probably the leading ND expert. His name is Bruce Grayson. Alright, Bruce Grayson. That combines the names of Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. That's pretty cool. But Bruce himself has published 100 peer-reviewed near-death articles in medical and psychological journals. But
0: Gary's right. Looks like he has over 100 peer-reviewed contributions. His most cited work is this one called the Near-Death Experience Scale, where he lays out a standardized 33-point questionnaire for talking to those who claim to have had an NDE. These questions focus entirely on qualia, feeling of peace, feeling of joy, Vivid thoughts, dull thoughts, life review, and sudden understanding. In spot-checking Grayson's papers, they focus on these vague sensations, not on documenting corroborating evidence in support of the idea that this is
1: anything other than the mental throes of a dying brain. The most incredible ones. People go, "Oh my gosh, that's really happened." Yeah, it's recorded.
2: I I can already tell people are wondering. Well, what? Like, give me, give me a taste. Well, give me, give
1: me these two. Yeah, here's, here's a couple. Um, This woman has a. Uh, she's being operated on. She has a near death experience. She's up above her body. She's looking down. She's watching herself. And sometimes they don't even know it's them because they identify with who's up by the ceiling that's important consciousness. And on the top of this medical device that was in the room, you know, hospitals often rivet numbers like offices do to keep track of typewriters and to keep track of things. She looked down and there was a 12 digit number. Riven and onto the top of this medical thing. And she said, I'm OCD. And so I memorized the 12 digit number. And so she comes to, she says to the nurse, Write this down. Now I'm not saying this is a number, but it's like, Write this down 67521600. 12 numbers. And the nurse wrote it down. And they were later moving the apparatus out of the room. And the nurse jumps in and says, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let me get my sheet out. Wow, the number's exactly right. This account comes from a book
0: called The Death Class, a true story about life, which recounts lectures by Professor Norma Bowe from her death class. The story doesn't include any details that could be corroborated. No patient name, no nurse name, no hospital name, no year, not even a serial number to see if it conceivably could be a respirator serial number for the given brand. This sounds like a third-hand anecdote told by a professor who trades on being entertaining. Is this the level of documentation we can expect that impresses Gary? By prefacing these with Grayson in the peer-reviewed studies, listeners like me
1: got the impression that that's the kind of evidence we would be hearing. It is not. Another one is a real fast one. A guy had surgery. He was up above his body watching the doctors do this, but he got maybe a little bored. I don't know. He started drifting a little bit, and looking around. He went through a wall into the next surgical ward, and he watched a guy having his leg amputated. So he gives an explanation of what happens in the room with the leg amputation because I saw it. But you're on that bed. Yeah, but I'm telling you, I saw it. How do you know? Here's some explanation. I'm I'm making up what he might have said, but he could have said, well, all the the nurses in the room had white uniforms on except for this one. She had a pale green uniform on. I mean, something like that.
0: I'm not going to fault Gary for not holding all the details of all the cases in his head at once. His memory isn't the arbiter of accuracy. I was able to track down the case Gary is likely referring to. It was a female patient, not male, who claims to have been out of body when she observed an amputation where the leg was placed in a yellow bag. That's the end of the detail. Now, this comes to us from a French documentary, Faux de Par, where Dr. Jean-Jacques Charbonnier relays his version of the story in just a few sentences. With all due respect to the doctor, there are no details given that are or can be corroborated. There's no write-up in a journal, as Gary implied there might be. This is an anecdote from a documentary from a company that has since gone out of business.
2: So I've been wanting to ask a historian this question for a long time now. And what is... It's another common objection that I see is that prob- most probably Jesus's body would have been thrown into a mass grave.
0: Well, that sounds familiar. I'm very excited that Craig acknowledges that the place the most crucifixion victims were buried was a mass grave. Mass grave, unmarked grave. So my
2: question is, what is the earliest historical evidence we have of Jews being thrown, criminals being thrown into a mass grave? Does it come at the time of Nero around 70 AD or does it come before then? Because it seems to me like that's the earliest evidence that we have of these mass graves.
1: Okay. First of all, you're going to be hard put to to nail exact historical references when what it was done. But I would concede, and many would, that that's what happened to most people. Gary Habermas agrees with me. Unmarked graves are what happened to most
0: crucifixion victims.
1: Let's hear that again. I would concede, and many would, that that's what happened to most people. I'm going to be using that clip forever. Not necessarily mass graves, but a a little classier would be a rectangular square in the ground, like today, only without a casket, and you put the body on top of it and covered up. That would be kind of a classy one. A mass grave would be, you know, garbage, you know, in a garbage heap or something.
0: The Romans were crucifying hundreds of people a day by some estimates. I haven't seen any references to individual plots. Maybe this is in Gary's upcoming book. But he seems to be on board with the fact that it's
1: unmarked, so moving along. But it's a totally moot point. It's a totally moot point, because like I say to people, let's take your theory. Give me your best shot. What do you want to say? Uh, They put it in a garbage dump, and by Sunday, it was already uh, burned up from the smoldering ashes that were always burning. Or dogs may have eaten it. Dogs may have eaten it. And I'll just go, that's cool. Yes, it's very cool. So what's wrong? Well, I don't know. The gospel story of Joseph is incorrect, or part of it is. He may have been the one that put him in the common grave, but for the most part— the gospel story would be wrong. And I'd say, Joseph,
2: Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah.
1: Okay. And I'd say, okay, so what do you have here? You've got you a moot point. You've picked a horrible example because Jesus could have died on Friday, been thrown in a trash heap, had his body eaten and or burned or both. And guess what's going to happen someday? What if he appears anyway? With all due respect to Gary,
0: it doesn't sound like he understands the nature of this objection. Perhaps that's because Gary wisely avoids trying to make a case for an empty tomb, or the historical accuracy of the gospel accounts. It's more relevant to someone like William Lane Craig. In that recent many-part saga where Craig and I went back and forth on the empty tomb, Craig actually knocked Habermas for this. Gary doesn't use it, and I think that's a mistake. Even if there was airtight evidence that Jesus' body had been thrown into a wood chipper, and his remains fed smoothie-style to a bear and the droppings from said bear were then shot into space. I wouldn't argue that an all-powerful being couldn't raise that person from the dead. He's all-powerful. Though I'm not sure what Doubting Thomas might have checked in such a case. Those of us making this masquerade observation don't think that a few feet of dirt was going to foil God's plans better than a rock-sealed tomb. No, the reason I raise this objection in non-Gary contexts is the one he
1: just pointed out. For the most part the gospel story would be wrong.
0: If Jesus ended up in an unmarked grave, which Gary concedes is the most common case, then the gospel stories are, for the most part, wrong. And it follows. An empty tomb isn't a fact that needs accounting for. Women didn't find the tomb empty, eliminating the already dubious claims of the criteria of embarrassment made by Dr. Craig and others. Early opponents to Christianity could have never produced a body to refute Christianity because no one knew where the body was and that the Gospels would then present fictional accounts as if they were historical. And these same Gospels, along with the same author sequel acts, are where we find the vast majority of the supposed resurrection appearances. If the relatively mundane tomb is unreliable, why would the more supernatural portions be reliable? It makes sense that a mass grave doesn't bother Gary, because Gary doesn't make any of the arguments or assertions I just listed. In this way, be like Gary.
1: It's like the body in the grave thing. It sounds funny, and they think they're going to get to first base by trying to trap you on something, but it doesn't disprove resurrection, so why are you wasting your time? Wait, wait. Who's trying to disprove resurrection?
0: We're evaluating the case for resurrection and finding it lacking. The resurrection is the positive claim here. If Gary is starting with an assumption that the resurrection happened, that God exists, and that there's an afterlife, and he's going to cling to these presupposed conclusions until such time as someone definitively proves them wrong then that's a big epistemological problem. We should believe something at such time there is sufficient evidence for it. When it comes to starting with a conclusion, don't be like Gary. Do the work. See if there's a legitimate case to be made. Don't just embrace unsubstantiated anecdotes from someone dressed like a doctor in a poorly made French documentary from a company that no longer exists as a pillar for your worldview merely because it agrees with what you already believe advocate for your own understanding. If you'd like to hear more about the resurrection of Jesus, check out this playlist, which includes those episodes where I'm feuding with William Lane Craig over empty tombs. See you there!